0: I think I'd be ignorant to say that Christianity is the only right religion. I don't know what the right religion is. It's just what I believe it is. Some people that I've met as just I, I've had friends and and the minute they find out about me or the minute that I I do anything that doesn't follow their religion, I'm they don't want anything to do with me. There's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad that can come out of it. And I'm not sure if it's from religion that the bad or the good comes out of it or whether it's the people. I respect a lot of faith and I think that Christianity is a pillar that's influenced by the other great religions in the world. My view on anyone who claims to have a monopoly on truth is that there is no one truth about anything. I think that a lot of religions say the same thing in different ways. Very important question, is Christianity too narrow? Friends, it's a tough question, but I find tremendous encouragement, imagining first all all four of our campuses studying this together, everybody at uh, Bullingbrook, those of you at 95th, really excited about Tuesday night in the city council meeting for all of you at 95th, Wheaton campus, Hobson campus, but beyond the four campuses of our church, isn't it Amazing to realize that right now, 830 plus churches throughout Chicagoland are wrestling with this question of is Christianity too narrow? Uh, thousands of groups, discussion groups throughout Chicagoland, will be meeting this week to discuss, or this last week they began discussing this question of is Christianity too narrow? What a unique moment! We are caught up in as God is doing a work in the land of, of, of our home. And just a fun, fun time. And I want to dive into it with you. Really excited for us to study this question. I want to begin, though, by just telling you how much I love my app that has maps and, and plots out routes to various places. I'm guessing you use it, too. One of the things I love about it is that it gives me options. It chose me three ways and said, you choose which way you want to go. Recently, I wanted to visit my folks up in Wisconsin, Lake Geneva area, and I was surprised when it gave me three very different routes. Let me just show you basically what, what it plotted out. Um, I've, I've labeled them uh, with names that make it a little more clear. I called this first one here, way over on the right side, the expressways with ease you know cutting towards the city i could hop on an expressway and just talk about ease one of the great things about an expressway is you can just veg you know you've been busy you need some downtime just sit back you don't even have to hit the brake you know if there's no traffic you're just going to cruise right on through and so expressways with ease are a good way to go don't do it during rush hour though all right and then there was side streets with adventure I noticed this most direct route that just wove in all of these little roads. And one of the fun things about the app is that it knows shortcuts, little back roads that you had n- never heard of, and I started looking at this route going, I didn't even know there was a road there. This is kind of fun. I would discover parts of Chicago land I've never seen before and, and learn some shortcuts. That's a good way to go, and then uh, there was one more that brought me way out west, and I call the Country Roads with Beauty. Now, the downside is you got to Slow down going through these little country towns, but it is awfully nice to get out in the wide open spaces and see the rolling hills. I'm curious what you would choose. Let's do a little survey, shall we? So I'm asking for hand raises from all four of our campus. Look around the room, get a sense of it. How about... Expressways with ease. Who, who would pick that route? Yes, there's hands here at Obson. I'm imagining at all the campuses. Some of you are very lazy. And you would love to just sit back and have some downtime. How about side streets with adventure? Is there anyone who's like, show me a new way, a shortcut? Oh, yeah. A lot of you are like, yeah, I love, love that. Fun. How about uh, country roads with beauty? Oh, my goodness we got country folk in our chair. What are you living here for, you know? (laughs) Isn't it curious to notice uh, how differing routes appeal to differing people? But the glorious thing about this map function is, though many people would choose different routes, the good news is they all arrive at the same destination. So it really doesn't matter which way you go, knowing that you'll get where you want to go. Do you know that is the dominant view of the pluralist, pluralistic society of many religions in our culture. The dominant view is, listen, they're all different roads, but they all arrive at the same location. The old metaphor, ancient one, is the mountain. You know, there's different paths going up different sides of the mountain, but different religions, but they all bring it to, to God or to heaven or paradise, whatever it may be. Do you know that in our culture, this belief is so popular that nearly half of all Americans believe that it doesn't matter what religion you adhere to because they are all basically teaching the same thing. And at the outset, that, that seems reasonable. When I, when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, they, they all have a moral code. Do you notice that? If you study world religions, they're all saying, hey, love, compassion honesty, fidelity, so many of these same moral traits are espoused by their moral codes. They've all got similar religious rituals, holy books where they encourage you to study and to memorize and meditate, and then they talk about prayer and meditation. They're just remarkable similarities. And so this, hey, let's just celebrate them all, not only is it logical, it's American, Think about it. Our country is based on, you know, one of the things, freedom of religion, religious tolerance. It doesn't, you know, other countries have a state religion that gets some priority. Here in America, you can choose whatever religion and there is no advantage to one over the other. And it just seems American to celebrate all the paths are great, you know, enjoy whichever one you choose to take. It'll all work out in the end. Very popular, very different from what the Bible teaches. Jesus had the audacity to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody gets to God the Father except through me. And when we hear that in our society, it's just like, oh, that that sounds so narrow-minded, so bigoted, so arrogant for Christ to say that. In a sense, he's saying on that map that all of the roads are dead ends except for one. There's only one way that gets through to that route. And I'll just acknowledge this. is like, "Ah." let's lean into it. Let's open the Bible and see if we can better understand God's exclusivity approach and see if there isn't good rationale behind the ways of God that make us go, exactly, God, I get it, I see it, I celebrate how you're inviting us to the one way. So what are we going to do? We're going to look at a passage found in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 30 through 33, but let's start with verse 30. The Apostle Paul originally wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome, and he said, even though the Gentiles... We're not trying to follow God's standards. They were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. Let me back up. Even though the Gentiles, is that word clear to you? A Gentile is a non-Jewish person. And you have to remember that Christianity was born in a Jewish context. Jesus, our Savior, Jewish guy. All the disciples, Jewish. First Christians, All Jewish, all right? But very early on, it was made clear that this road, this way of reconciling with God that Jesus brought was available to the whole world. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not. And Gentiles accepted Christ by the masses. So many, in fact, that the majority of Christians pretty soon were Gentiles. And many of the Jews rejected him. In fact, that's why Paul says, even though uh, the Gentiles were not trying to follow God, think about it, Jews were raised to follow God in his ways. Gentiles were not. These are people who've got no spiritual heritage. They've got no track record of faithfulness. They've got nothing religiously going for them. And what does it say? They were made right with God how? And it was by faith that this took place. The road that these Gentiles found is the road called faith, specifically faith in Jesus Christ. Let me explain what the faith means, okay? And to do so, I need to back up like way back and go to the beginning where God gave free will to humanity and said, you have the freedom to choose me or choose against me. And Adam and Eve, our forefathers and everybody since, has chosen against God. And it's an offensive choice. It's like, okay, God, you're like the king. Well, not in my life. God, I don't need you. I know what you've told me to do. Not going to do it. I know what you told me not to do. That I'm going to do. And friends, I'm a little with an attitude here but I'm trying to express just how offensive our cosmic rebellion is against God. And this this rebellion comes with a price, a cost. The death penalty is what scripture says people deserve for this great offense. Now, some would say, "Why? Why can't God just I thought God's gracious. Why can't he just say, "Hey, let's pretend all that rebellion against me never happened let's sweep it under the carpet and look the other way god wants to forgive but god is not only gracious he's also just and as a just god he knows that horrible offense deserves serious punishment and to ignore justice and pretend it didn't happen goes against the very nature of who god is and so god found himself in a dilemma of sorts how can i demonstrate my justice and my grace. And he found the only perfect solution in the person of Jesus Christ and his rescue mission. Now, Jesus, it's hard for us to understand, but is God come to earth putting on human flesh? God in human flesh saying, give me your guilt and sin, The Bible describes this miracle of transfer where all of our rebellion and sin are somehow transferred to Jesus' shoulders. And as he's now got our guilt, he's able to go to the cross and say, watch this, I'm gonna die in your place. I'm gonna suffer the death penalty for you. And friends, the notion of God dying for the very people that caused the offense is mind-boggling. But that's what the Christian message is. Jesus satisfied justice by dying in the place of all of us. And with this great act, the cross of Christ, we now must respond. And there's really one of two responses to what Christ did. You either say, fantastic, I'm in, or no thank you. You can say, I see what Jesus has did, and I turn to you in faith. That's really what this response is. It's turning to the Savior and saying, I'm putting my trust in you, Jesus. I understand I got a serious rebellion against God problem. I understand that you're the Savior, that you came to take care of this problem, so I'm turning to you and saying, save me. What you did on the cross, apply it to my life. You're my only hope. That's faith in Jesus. And the Bible says, when you turn to, to Christ and seek Him to be your Savior, in that moment of prayer, boom, you're, you're right, you're made right with God. And you become part of God's family set for eternity. Now, as I describe that, so many of you are like, yeah, oh, that sounds great. It sounds like a great way. But what's the big deal with the other religions being wrong? Why isn't their way You know, just a different way. That's a good question. And the next verses of this passage begin to help us understand how vastly different this way of faith in Christ is from these other religious paths. I'm going to read now verse 31, the next verse. But the people of Israel, that's the Jews, who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law they never succeeded in getting right with God. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him, that is Christ. That's faith, is trusting in him. Instead of taking the route or the road of trusting in Jesus as Savior, they took the route of trying to get right with him by keeping the law. Uh, Friends, I need to clarify. Not all Jews rejected Jesus. I've already made that evident. The first disciples were Jewish. The first Christians were Jewish. But by the time Paul wrote this, he makes an overstatement because the majority of the people of Israel, the Jewish people, had said no to Jesus. Many had chosen Christ, but more had said, no, no thanks. And the route they chose was obedience according to the law. They said, hey, listen, God gave us some rules, some moral rules. Instead of trusting your Savior, I'm going to fight the best I can to obey these rules and earn a place in God's good standing. You say, well, that's fine. You know, it seems like there are two ways. They're both trying. You know, that's great. No, The Bible says this is profoundly different, and as a result, these guys never succeeded in getting right with God. That road doesn't get to the destination. To illustrate just how different these two approaches are, I want to show you a picture. What would you choose in this picture? The elevator or the stairs? I know the fitness people are, take the stairs, you know, and I appreciate that. I'm not using this illustration for physical fitness, but spiritual fitness, okay? I want to talk about getting right with God. If you want to get up to the Lord, to heaven when you die, there are two ways you can try to accomplish that. One is the stairs. These Uh, Jews who had rejected Jesus, they took the stair route. Stairs are, I will do it by my strength, by my effort. I will follow the law, live a good life, earn my place with right with God. The faith in Christ route is symbolized by the elevator. It's this humiliation where you look up and you say, I can't climb that far. And you have the humiliation to push the button and say, I need a power outside of myself to do for me what I can't accomplish on my own. And you step into the elevator. It's interesting when Christians are sometimes described as those who are in Christ. He invites us into his world, his life, and he takes us where we can't get on our own. Friends, they're very different routes The Bible says this route, though it may look impressive, doesn't work. The the building is like the Sears Tower. No, it's 50,000 Sears Towers. You can't climb. I mean, no amount of good deeds will ever outweigh the offense of our sin. God says, trust me, your righteous actions are not as impressive as you think, and they will never tip the scale of justice in your favor. The only way is to get in the elevator and trust Jesus to take you where you can't go on your own. Friends, uh, this, this difference is so profound that in some ways God says the stairs, this route, is only making the problem worse. And you say, wait a minute, they're trying to resolve the problem. How is that making it worse? Well, what's the problem? The problem is independence from God. Remember when Adam and Eve rebelled, when humanity turned away from God? We were created to live forever desperately dependent on God. But Satan said, don't cling to God. Go your own way. You can build a better life on your own. And so the fracture in our relationship with the Lord at its core is one of breaking away from the dependence we were made for. Well, trying to solve that problem by saying, I don't need you, I can climb these stairs and fix the problem on my own. The Lord's like, no, I'm not going to accept a solution to an independence problem that's independent. You're only demonstrating a different version of what got you in this mess in the first place. And God says, the only way is if you'll have the humility to admit you've got a problem you can't fix and cling to me once again. Now, this image and these verses are helpful as we seek to understand Jews who rejected Jesus. But I'm here to tell you, it's also helpful in understanding why the other world religions, God says, aren't just aren't going to work. Let, let me show you a pie chart that I think is really helpful. This is a chart of the five major world religions. All right? There are more than these five. In fact, this other category of 7% of the world follows other religions, uh, but there's too many to consider. The five major are Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and Jews. And by Jews here, we're talking about Judaism, those Jews who practice without Jesus. The Jews are considered one of the five major world religions not because of the number of their adherents. You can see they're only 0.2%, which is about 10 to 15 million. The reason the Jews are part of this top five is because of the age of their faith. You know, we know it dates back to the very beginning. And because they are foundational for both Christians and Muslims. Both say we were uh, an extension of uh, the Jewish people. And so let's take a look at the five major world religions. Christianity, 31% of uh, the population, which is roughly 2.3 billion people. He's saying, are you telling me all Christians are elevator people, faith in Jesus? No. Unfortunately, there are some who have the name Christian, but they're trying to climb the stairs and earn their way into right standing with God. Just want to acknowledge that. Let's go to Muslims. Twenty-four percent practice the religion of Islam, roughly 1.8 billion. Began by Muhammad, you know, like 600 years after Christ, And uh, Muhammad taught that the goal of Islam is paradise, similar to our heaven. But to get to paradise, Muhammad taught you need to practice faithfully the five pillars of Islam. Maybe you've heard about the five pillars of Islam. The first is a profession with your mouth. You need to repeatedly claim this belief that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Uh, Muslims say this many times a day. In addition to the profession, you need to pray five times a day, bowing towards Mecca. You need to give financially. You need to fast at designated times. And you need to go on pilgrimage to our holy city of Mecca, they would say, once in your lifetime. Those five pillars, Muhammad, taught, you've got to go after them. And Muslims go after them like crazy, believing that only through faithful adherence do they increase their odds of making it to paradise. Muslims die never knowing if they have done enough to earn their way. But the simple point I want to point out is they're climbing stairs. They're believing that through this human effort, they can accomplish their goal. Let's take a look at Hindus, shall we? 15% of the world population is Hindus. That's roughly 1.1 billion people very old religion, started back in India a long time ago. The goal of Hinduism is is what they call moksha. Moksha is like heaven, but it's really not a place as much as a state of mind, a, a, a state of mind of liberation. In fact, it means liberation. And the goal of moksha is being liberated from the endless cycle of reincarnation. Hindus are very into the doctrine of reincarnation, that when you die, you start over as a new person. And they want each of their reincarnations to be increasing on the caste system. Within the Hindu faith, some people are more important than precious than others, but you can work your way up in subsequent reincarnations if you work hard. And eventually you'll get to where you break out of the cycle of reincarnation and you get to moksha, a place, a state of mind where there's no suffering. Well, how do you get up the caste system and these reincarnations and eventually end them all together? That The, the Path. Well, actually, there's four. It's called the four paths of liberation, and I'll just tell you what they are. The first path is the path of devotion. Hinduism is a polytheistic religion. They believe in many gods. You must be devoted. You must worship one of them. Pick one, but be devoted to that one god. The the second path is the path of action, which is moral behavior. Then the path of knowledge. Right truth in your head. And then the path of meditation. Hindus are very into meditation. By devoted adherence to the four paths, you can arrive at moksha. Just want to point out, they're climbing stairs, believing that through their own effort, they can accomplish the goal of their religion. Let's turn now to Buddhism. Seven percent or half a billion people are Buddhists. Buddhism is a branch or came out of Hinduism. The Buddha, as he's now referred to, felt that there were weaknesses in Hinduism and created what he believes an improved version. He said the goal is not just liberation from the cycles of reincarnation. That's part of it. But he said, the Buddha said, no, it's more than that. Our goal, he said, is nirvana. And nirvana is this state of bliss arriving at this place where you have no more desire You have no more thought, no more emotion. You're just kind of in this eternal happiness, uh, a, a very ethereal, unconscious state. And nirvana is the goal, Buddha said, and it's only achieved. He looked at the four paths of Hinduism and said, no, this is better. We have an eightfold path. and They are right beliefs, right attitude, right speech, Right actions, that's your moral activity. Right labor, that's your job, you know, work. Right thoughts, right awareness, and right meditation. And the Buddha said, by faithful adherence to the Eightfold Path, you can achieve nirvana. Simply pointing out, it's climbing stairs. It's doing your best to get yourself where you want to go. Well, That brings us to the Jews. And again, here, I'm referring to the 10 million or so Jews who reject Christ and therefore practice a religion known as Judaism. And there, as we've already seen in the text, it's the law. They're clinging to the law, saying by faithfully doing these things, we can climb the stairs to a right place with God. Uh, Friends, all faith except Christianity. Christianity is the only one that says we're into elevators and not the stairs. And that is a big deal to God. Now, when I talk about the Jews here, I want to clarify a curious moment in time. When you look at the Old Testament days, you say, were they all stair climbers? No, no. God had been Preach in faith, the elevator route, from the beginning. God had been seeking to convey to the Jews in the Old Testament that his plan is one of the gift of forgiveness. The whole sacrificial system, do you remember? It was all designed to point to Jesus eventually. The, The Jews were taught, you're a sinner. You've got sins that are a big problem. So take a lamb. Go to the temple in Jerusalem. Put your hand on the lamb, symbolically transferring your guilt and sin to this poor animal. The animal will then be slaughtered on the altar and it will die in your place. Because it's satisfying justice, you will be forgiven, which really never made much sense as to why is this lamb able to do this for me? Until John the Baptist pointed to Jesus Christ and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. And those who got it were like, oh, so all of these years we've been practicing this lamb sacrifice to prepare us for this concept of the innocent third party has to take my place and die in my behalf so I can be forgiven. Now, here's the problem. A lot of the Jews did not get it. Some of the Jews, back in the Old Testament day, were faith people. They were like, Lord, I'm, I'm counting on your gracious forgiveness in my life. It's my only hope. And they were right with God. Other Jews... Were all of austere people saying, oh, I'm going to follow the law and impress God and earn my right way? You couldn't tell. You know, they were all just Jews all worshiping together. And those who were right with God versus those who really weren't right with God, it was difficult to see until Jesus came and he made it crystal clear. Look at this. Our next verse. Verse 32, look what it says. Speaking of those Jews who rejected Jesus, it says in verse 32, they stumbled over the great rock in their path. What is that rock? It's Jesus Christ. God had warned them of this in the scriptures a number of places in the Old Testament. And he quotes a couple of them here. When when God said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. you got two options with this rock. You can trip on it or you can trust in it. I need a rock, you know, to to make this clear. And so, oh boy, uh, bear with me here. This is a big one. All right. So this rock is symbolizing Jesus Christ for us, okay? And the passage says, they came across the rock in their path. They encountered Jesus. Many of them encountered him face to face, you know, when he was alive. Essentially, the message of Jesus, his message then was, hey, I am the Messiah, the Rescuer, the Savior. I have come to seek and save sinners. And all the Jews who were just going along had to respond to this Jesus. The Bible teaches us that those who were stair-climbing Jews, those who believed that they didn't need a Savior because they could save themselves, they rejected Jesus and in doing so tripped, fell flat on their face, revealing that their spiritual plan was a failure. But others, the passage says, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. To trust in Jesus is to say, Oh, a Savior? Of course. That's what I've needed all along. Jesus, I recognize you are God's promised rescue plan. And I trust in you. It's interesting. Other passages in the Old Testament and New refer to this stone as the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone. The foundation stone that you can build your life upon. So to trust... Oh, it's a little wobbly. Here, let me... uh, turn it over. There we go. Much better. So to trust in Jesus is to step up onto the stone. You have two choices. Trip over the stone, essentially rejecting Jesus, revealing that you're on the stair climbing path, or step up onto the stone and say, I'm putting all my hope and confidence in you. And God said, you know, it's unclear as to people's hearts, if they're clinging in faith to me or not, let them encounter Jesus Christ, and we'll see where their heart is at, how they respond to Christ. Now, I could imagine some here are saying, yeah, but what if, what if people live in some obscure island that has never heard of Jesus Christ? What if their path never encounters Christ? Is there any hope for them? This is where Christians disagree, I'll just be frank with you. Some Christians argue, wait a minute, if that person who's never heard of Jesus, they can still believe in God because of the creation and the natural revelation, they can conclude there must be a God who made all this. They can realize their sin because God's given every human being a conscience that convicts them of sin. And what if in their conviction, knowing they've offended this God, they turn to God and say, would you please, I can't impress you and try to earn my way out of this, but I'm going to beg you, would you be merciful and gracious to me? I'm going to put my trust in your grace. Could that person receive the benefit of the cross? In other words, be reconciled to God through the cross, even though they don't know the name of Jesus. Some Christians say yes. Some Christians say no. I am of the camp that believes that is possible. I may be wrong. Ultimately, that question doesn't matter for you, because you're looking at the rock right now. The rock is in your path. The the proclamation of who Christ is and what he came to do has been given to you. If it hadn't been given before, you heard it just a few minutes ago. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And we can know it from his resurrection, which we'll talk about next week. But the question here is, what will you do? You've encountered this Savior sent by God. Will you trust in him, or will you trip over him, revealing, I don't need a Savior? That's the question. And my prayer is that you'd trust in him even now. In fact, I'm going to pray, and my prayer is really not my prayer. It's your prayer. (laughs) In fact, God's not even listening to what I say as much as he is listening to the silent cry of your heart, all of you at 95th and Brook and Wheaton, Hobson. In this moment, you can step up onto the rock and say, Jesus, I'm putting my trust in you. I'm done with the stairs. I'm, push, I'm humiliating myself by pushing the elevator button and saying, I need you to do what I can't do for myself. And in that instant of prayer, you are made right with God. So let's pray, shall we? God, I know that there are some who, some of us had the silly notion that we could impress you with our morality. How foolish to think we could take care of this problem. God, we see it now. And we reject all attempts to earn right standing with you. And Lord, in this sacred moment, we are pushing the elevator button. We're stepping up on the rock. We're saying yes to the rescuer, the Savior. Yes to Jesus Christ. Jesus, forgive our sin. Apply what you did on the cross to our lives in this moment. Make us right with God. We trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.